So as we begin reading in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into the serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hands over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers and canals and their ponds and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Probably the most important question in the world is asked in the book of Exodus, and it's asked by Pharaoh. If you look back in chapter 5, you'll find that when Moses and Aaron first go before Pharaoh, with the request to let God's people go, Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? He would ask that question, who is God that I should obey him? Well, you know, this story is a few thousand years old, but I find that the experience of it is not. Over the years and the people that I've talked to about coming to Christ and experiencing the salvation of God, I think this is the most pertinent question in the world. Because I think it is usually the stumbling block or the hardship that people have with making a decision to trust in Christ. 
You see, Egypt had many gods, so obviously the the idea of God did not bother them. The idea that the Israelites would have their own God wouldn't really bother them. What bothered Pharaoh is when this Israelite God would claim to have some pull on how Pharaoh would behave. In other words, he's going to impact Pharaoh's life. He's coming to Pharaoh and saying, Pharaoh, you need to do this. You need to submit to me, to me and to let my people go. Well, I think it's the same struggle with, that we still have throughout our world today. I think that's the pivotal issue. If I believe in him, if I submit to him, he's claiming an authority over my life. God's going to tell me how to act. He's going to tell me how to treat people. He's going to tell me what I should do with my time. He's going to tell me what I should do with my money. He's going to tell me what I should do in my sexuality and with my hobbies and my pleasures and he's going to want to order my life and that i think is the biggest obstacle to people coming to christ is they don't want to relinquish the reins on their own life they want to maintain some control and they're okay with god if he's on the sidelines they're okay with god if he's just a what people want to believe or a a nice warm fuzzy feeling But when he's going to start meddling in my life or call upon me to repent, insinuating that I've done something that's wrong, then people start to take exception. People don't like the idea of being told that they were wrong or that they don't measure up or that they need to change the way that they live to match what God's ideals are for them. I think that's the biggest obstacle that we run into. And that's exactly the obstacle or the question that we're answering as we look at this passage this morning. As Pharaoh asked the question, who is God? And I don't think Pharaoh was actually looking for an answer. I'm saying, who does he think he is to tell me how to live my life? Can you imagine that? To the God of the universe, the God that created all this just by speaking it into existence, to say, who does he think he is to meddle in my life? Well, I dare say that if you're in here this morning and you've trusted Christ, you've overcome that hurdle at some point in your life where you had the reins to your life and you had to come to the point where you would willingly submit to the Lordship of Christ in your life and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. That's what we're looking at this morning. Though Pharaoh is not treating it as a sincere question, he is going to get an answer. And that's what these chapters are about. God is repeatedly going to demonstrate for Pharaoh exactly who he is. Well, we see him do it, first of all, through a declaration. In chapter 7, verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In the same chapter, verse 17, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. When we get into chapter 8 and verse 10, it says that you may know that there is no one like our Lord God. And then later in that same chapter, in verse 22, it says that you may know that I am the Lord. And then as we go on into chapter 9, In verse 14, he says again that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. A few verses later in verse 16, it says to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And in verse 29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. In chapter 10, in verse 2, it says that you may know that I am the Lord. And then if we skip even up to chapter 14, it says in verse 4, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then in verse 18 also it says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God through all these plagues is saying, This is who I am. I am the Lord. And He declares it to be true. 
Well, not only does he declare it to be true, but we also see a demonstration of it. And that's the whole point of these chapters. God is going to demonstrate his power before Pharaoh. In doing each one of these plagues, God takes down a number of the Egyptian gods. Some, there's one specific God. Sometimes there's more than one God. For example, like with the God of the Nile, when God turns the, the, the Nile River into blood, there are many gods that had something to do with the Nile. One God in particular, a God named Happy, was the God of the Nile. All the blessings that they had as Egypt were really tied to that Nile River. And so you can imagine when God comes and he turns that Nile River that's protected by one of their gods, that's created by one of their gods, that's blessed by one of their gods, and God turns that river into blood, God is showing them, you want to see who I am? You know your God happy and the others that are watching over that river? This is what I'll do to that river. And he tears down their gods through this plague. Well, they had gods for the other ones too. They actually had a god who had a frog head. Heket was the name of this god. The frog in Egypt was kind of like a cow in India. They weren't allowed to kill frogs because they were seen as as a divine blessing. And again, connected to the Nile as well. Well, then God comes along with the second plague and he just overcomes the land with the frogs. In fact, he tells them the frogs are going to be in your house. They're going to be in your bed. They're going to be on your pillow. They're going to be in your kitchen. They're going to be in your oven. They're going to be in your bread troughs. They're going to be upon your servants. They're going to be upon you. Can you imagine the screams that came out of Egypt that day? As all these frogs are just everywhere, everywhere you look. You can pull back the sheets on bed to climb into bed, and there they are. And how can you close your eyes and fall asleep knowing that they're going to be on you when you're sleeping? It's like going to the shack with the mice, right? And so, and so it's, a, it's like you know they're going to be on you as soon as you fall asleep. And, and, and to make it worse, up to this point the magicians have kept Pharaoh from being all that excited about the things God is doing. Why? Because Moses throws his staff on the ground, or Aaron does, and it turns into a snake, and the magicians of Egypt come and throw their staffs on the ground, and they turn into snakes. Now, I don't know if those were like illusions, or if it was actual like satanic power that they had this ability. Satan's a big counterfeiter. But at any rate, they were able to do the same thing that Moses and Aaron could do. So Pharaoh says, I'm not impressed. They go to the Nile and they turn it into blood and they say, well, look, see, we can do this. And they take some water. They must have dug along the Nile to get that water. And they turn that into blood. Well, that's helpful. And then with the frogs, they say, here's God gives them this plague of frogs, frogs everywhere. And the magicians come before Pharaoh and I don't know what they do, but somehow they do more frogs. (laughs) Like Pharaoh wanted more frogs. You, I, if I was Pharaoh, I'd have said, look, you really want to impress me? Make them go away. But apparently they couldn't do that because he had to call Moses and Aaron back. And says, all right, what's it going to take to get rid of these frogs? He actually consents to let the people of go, but then he, he pulls back. He withdraws that consent as soon as they're gone. Moses gives Pharaoh the decision point. He says, look, Pharaoh, I'm going to let you pick the time. And at the time that you pick, that's when all the frogs are going to go away. And it's always bewildered me. Pharaoh says, okay, tomorrow. <laughs> I'd have said, are you kidding me? Today, an hour ago, I want them gone right now. It shows you the stubbornness of our heart, the stubbornness of the human heart to not let go of the control in your own life. Pharaoh was willing to live with the frogs one more day to not have to give that up just yet. And so with each of these plagues, there's like at least one God that's going down with the plague, if not four or five or more of these different gods. And he said throughout there repeatedly, so that the world may know, so that you may know 
so that all the Egyptians might know who I am. And it did make a lasting impact. Forty years later, when they do finally go into the promised land, they spend two people into the promised land to spy out the promised land. Then they hide at the home of a harlot, Rahab. It says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, 40 years later, the people of Jericho are shaking in their boots. Why? Because they remember what happened to Pharaoh. They remember the great things and the mighty acts that God did before Pharaoh as he destroyed all their gods. None of their gods were able to stand up or overcome the God of these people. When Israel leaves Egypt, God takes them to a place and he gives them the law. The first part of the law that God gives them is the Ten Commandments. Notice the first four of the commandments that God gives to the Israelites. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The first four of the commandments that God gives to us all deal with our relationship with God. Often we think of sin as doing something that is bad or evil, and that it is that. But you know, one of the things that sin does in our life is when we take even good things and make them ultimate things. It was God that created the Nile River. It was God that gave even Egypt the blessings. Remember, it was God that sent Joseph into Egypt to save Egypt and the surrounding nations during the time of a famine. It was God that brought all these blessings But what happens? They manufacture other gods and they give them the credit for it. Israel does the same thing when Moses is up on top of the mountain getting the law of God. Before he comes back down off the mountain, they've already made a golden calf and they bow down before the calf and they say, you are the God that brought us up out of Egypt. They give the credit for what God did to these images that they made in their own hands. And where did they get the gold to make those images? God had the Egyptians give it to them before they left. So even the blessings that came from God, they molted it down and made it into another God to worship. We do the same thing when we take good things in our lives and we make them the ultimate thing. The Bible tells us that every good gift comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights, in whom is no shadow of turning, it tells us in the book of James. Every good gift comes from Him. And you know how it's supposed to work? It's supposed to kind of work like Christmas morning. You've all seen it many times. We give our kids gifts and we're excited to see them because we know they're gonna, how much they're going to enjoy it. And we watch them open it and we watch their faces light up. And a lot of times we're filming as their faces are lighting up and they're so excited about this new gift that they got. And then what happens? They open it up and they're all excited and they yell out a big thanks and they come running over and they give you a big hug. And then they go back and want help getting the box open so that they can play with that new toy. And it's just a great time, isn't it? It's an awesome experience. That's how it's supposed to be with us and God. Whenever we get something good to enjoy, an experience or, a, or even a possession or a thing, we should see it the same way, that this is a good gift from God. And our response toward that good gift should make gratitude in our hearts toward God and should promote worship. But often, let me ask you if this is the case for you as it is for me, sometimes some of the good and fun and interesting things that God brings into my life 
I enjoy it, and then I pursue it, and it ends up kind of getting in the way of my relationship with God. Because I get so excited about that thing that I focus on that thing. And, and not that God doesn't want us to enjoy it. He does want us to enjoy it. But I can get so excited on that thing that that becomes what I think about in most of my, most of my moments and what I'm focused on and what I'm reading about and what I'm looking into and what I'm watching videos online about and what I'm, and where's God? God's going, hey, remember me? I'm the one that gave you that. The Bible says that covetousness, our pursuit of things, our desire for things becomes idolatry. That thing which was given to us by our God to enjoy becomes our God. We need to be careful that these images, these things, that they're not pursued for themselves. The things that I like to do, when I, when I get a chance to do them, when I get a chance to pursue that or to enjoy something like that, what does it do in my heart? Does it make me focus more on that thing or does it make me focus more on God? Because if I get to experience something and my heart goes to, man, God, thank you for that. That is so awesome. Then that's worship. If my heart just goes to, wow, this is cool, drawing my heart away from God and toward this thing, instead then it's becoming an idol. But you see that happens when the good things in life become the ultimate things. God is the ultimate thing. We need to keep him on that throne. The last thing that we see, and we're going to see quite a bit within this, is the defiance of man. We see the declaration of God. We see the demonstration of God and who He is. But the other thing that comes out over and over and over through this whole passage is the defiance of man. We see it in Pharaoh. And I think it applies to more than just Pharaoh. It applies to anyone that is, that is obstinate in refusing to humble themselves before God. Refusing to come to that point of re- repentance and putting their faith in Jesus Christ clinging to one of those good things and not willing to let go of that or put it in its proper place in our life and in our relationship with God. The exciting thing about it is not all of them were obstinate. Some of them, when you get to the plague of the hail, and God warns them ahead of time, I'm going to bring this hail upon you. It says that some of the Egyptians feared God and they pulled their people and their animals off of the fields. But even some of the Egyptians, it seems maybe kind of joined up with the Israelites a little bit. And the reason I say that is in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 38, it says a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. When Pharaoh finally lets them go and they hit the road, it says there's this mixed multitude with them. Now, who is that mixed multitude? We're not exactly sure. Maybe there are other slaves that some of the Egyptians had picked up somewhere along the line that ended up put in with the Israelites. It's just very difficult to know who this mixed multitude is. But in Egypt, there's obviously another group of people or from the Egyptians themselves that ended up with the Israelites when they left. And so they weren't all that obstinate. Most of Egypt is defiant against God. I would say even in our societies, I'd say most people are defiant against God. You know, in, the, in America, there's only about 3% of the population that claim to be atheist. So most of the population does not mind if you believe in a God. But you know what? If you start discussing subjects and how God's Word applies to different subjects, then you will have much more than 3% of the people saying, wait a minute, you can't tell me how to live. Well, it's not me telling you how to live. It's, it's God and His Word telling you how to live. You can't push that on me. They're defiant against God. I, I think about this poem called Invictus. And it was written by William Ernest Henley. And uh, you may not know the whole poem, but I'd about guarantee you know the very last part of it. it is the very last part of it, he says, I am the master of my fate, the captain 
of my soul. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Mr. Henley. I don't want to put words or ideas in his mind that were not there. When he was young, he experienced tuberculosis of the bone. He ended up having a leg amputated. So he went through some real struggles. He was able to have an active life right up until he died at the age of 53, so he didn't live to be real old. Some of these, I, I think, statements are dealing with what he had in getting through those struggles. And you've got to have some determination and some grit to go through some of the struggles. But he says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And again, if you're just looking at his strength and getting over an illness or something, I can see that. That's, but I think it's going farther than that. What is he thankful for? His unconquerable soul. His ability to not be overcome. Now, now that's okay in, in light of illness, in light of some of those things. But you know what? It's not okay when we, when we point it back toward God and say, even you, the creator of my soul, will not conquer my soul. My soul will not be subject even to you. Now, I'm going to leave it to you whether you think that's what he's saying or not, but it seems to come around to that by the end of the poem. Because he says, In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. In other words, he's taking, he says, I'm taking my lumps in life. I've gone through some struggles, some hardships. He says, and my head is bloody. I'm beaten, but I am not bowed. I am not bowing. I've gone through some, some aches and some pains, but you have not heard me cry. Right? He's standing strong. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. Talking about death and the shade being the kind of the unknown. It's dark. You can't see into it. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. So he's saying, look, I've gone through this struggling life and I remain unbowed. You have not heard me cry. And I'm facing death and whatever it is out there, I'm not afraid. And then the last part. It matters not how straight the gate, in allusion to the Bible, how charged with punishments the scroll. Now see, this is where I think it shows a defiance toward God. He says, I don't care how straight the gate has to be. Or if you unroll the scroll as we stand before the judgment of God and the things that we've done, the, the punishments that are on the scroll, the punishments, the judgment that I'm going to face from God. He says, I don't care what the judgment I'm going to face from God is. I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. There's a defiance there that in mankind we celebrate that. This is kind of the idea of pulling yourself by your own up by your own bootstraps, of being your own your own man, your own person, that you're not going to become subject to anybody, that you're going to call the shots in your life. You're going to this is Pharaoh. And it's the gods of self accomplishment that we so easily succumb to from time to time. Well, a few things that I find within the passage that are hints that can help us with this is, is one, that we need to be careful that we're not blinded by prosperity. I think that that's part of what the struggle with Egypt was. Egypt had it good. The Nile did give them what they needed each year. It flooded in the fields and they had prosperity and they were enjoying a real time of blessing. That can blind you. I remember years ago watching a a Facebook conversation, and somebody in the conversation made this statement, I have a good life. I have a good home. We drive nice vehicles. We have a good life. We have lots of stuff. We see we're very prosperous, and yet I'm living in sin. But yet God is blessing us in our life, so God must be fine with how we're living. You know what? It's easy to get sucked into that kind of mindset. Look, if life's going smooth, everything's going fine, uh, everybody's healthy, everything's good, then God must be fine. God even came to Israel before and told them, don't think that way. 
Notice he said in Psalm 50, he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You know what? We cannot let our prosperity blind us. The Bible says God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Egypt was going along. Their life was prosperous. Things were good. And what that meant to them, if everything's going good, the gods are happy with us. But then, secondly, this hardness of heart, this defiance of man, ignores counsel. The magicians are an interesting group in, in this. At first they come out and they duplicate the miracles that they can. By the time they get to the third miracle, the miracle of the gnats, they can't duplicate that miracle. And notice what they say to Pharaoh. It says in verse 19 of chapter 8, The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And now the, the magicians, by the third plague, the, the magicians are defeated. They can't do it. By the sixth plague, the plague of boils, the magicians can't even show up because they're so sore from the boils that are all over them. And, and so I bet it by this time they're probably not trying to make more boils. <laughs> they recognize the foolishness of that. Just before God brings the eighth plague, and notice in chapter 10 and verse 7, it says, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? You see, at this point, Pharaoh's counselors are coming alongside of him and saying, let these people go. What do we have left? He rejects the counsel. Have you ever had a friend that you were really concerned, some decisions that they were making, a direction that they were headed, that you would come along and say, look, I think you're going, I think you're going the wrong way. I think, you need, I think you need to rethink this. And they blow you off. Have you ever been that person who had friends come alongside them and say, I think you're heading the wrong direction? You see, that's, that's what happened. When we get defiant toward God, when we're trying to be in control of our own life, then sometimes we ignore counsel that is very, would be very good for us. But then also we notice that this leads to self-destruction. Because Pharaoh would do this even to his own harm. You know, I remember when I was 17 years old and I was a senior in high school and I decided I was going to be the captain of my soul the master of my own destiny. And so I started breaking the rules at home just to break the rules at home, just to show that I could. And I ended up out of the home. I ended up thrown out of my home. And I ended up living in a basement down by the washer and dryer for three bachelors living upstairs that were recently graduated from high school and people that I knew. And uh, you know what? I left a pretty nice home to go live in that pit. But I was the captain of my soul. <laughs> I was a master of my destiny. Destiny wasn't looking real high. But, but you know, it wasn't until finally some friends came around me and said, what are you doing? Look at the, the home you left and look at where you're at. You had it good. In fact, the friends that were giving me this advice didn't have it as good as I did. They didn't have the home life I had. And I woke up and I humbled myself and I asked if I could come back home. And their response was, yep, same rules as you had when you left. I'm good with that. I'm okay. You know, when we get acting defiantly, when we just trying to take control and be the boss, we can make stupid decisions and for our own destruction. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't stop there because if we remain in our defiance, we also damage others. I hate to see what can happen within a family when defiance takes root within that family. 
I hate to see it among kids and young people when they enter into a state of defiance and rebel against their parents. It affects the whole family, not just the person. When it involves the parents within the family. There's been so many times where, through my life where I've seen parents go defiantly toward a, a, a route that leads, leading to their own destruction. You know, you want to destroy yourself, that's one thing. But you know, I often think, don't they see how this is affecting their kids, their spouse? And they can persist defiantly in that sin or in that path of destruction and the, the harm and the damage that they will do to their own home, to their own spouse, that they stood up before everyone and said, I'm going to love this person for the rest of my life. The destruction that will happen to their own children. And you know what? That's exactly what Pharaoh did. Pharaoh persisted in his defiance right to the, it would cost his own son his life. Your actions affect your whole family. They affect your community. They affect your church. They affect your friends. Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Let's ask that question more sincerely. Who is God? Does he have a rightful claim on my life? Objectively, the answer is yes. So if we submit to that claim on our life, then we are part of the delivered, the ones that are delivered and the ones that get to dwell with God, not the part that are destroyed.